R.C. Sproul has been asked a few times what will be the biggest issue that the church will face in the next 25 years. And of course, Sproul says, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I don't even come close to that. But he said this, that just looking at past history of the church, church history for 2,000 years, for instance, and you can probably go back and go all the way back to the Old Testament days too. But speaking of uh, those, the 2,000 years, you can see how church history has always challenged the deity of Christ. And so whenever he was asked the question, what is the biggest issue that the church will face in the next 25 years, he says the deity of Christ. And you think about that for a moment, and to, that, to us, that's a gimme. We know that, the deity of Christ. Why? There's no doubt about that, right? But if you look out into the world today, most don't believe that Jesus is God. And you can actually ask some people that even go to church, even, if they believe that Jesus is God, and they might have some problems with that fact that He is deity. Uh, so what Sproul said is we need to be able to articulate what we believe on the deity of Christ. We need to be able to say that, to speak it, to, to know what it is and to be able to give it to others what Scripture says about the Godhood and the Trinity. Because the deity and the Trinity is being challenged in huge ways. It's being made fun of. Always has been, but there are certain times where that is a huge issue. So, as we are in Colossians today in chapter 1, and we have been, um, we've been dealing with the supremacy of Christ. We're in a section that talks about the very heart of who Jesus is. About what He has done. And uh, I can't think of uh, a more excellent passage that proclaims the supremacy and excellencies of Christ than right where we're at. And I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to do it as much justice as I would like to, uh, but we will see just in Scripture here as the Holy Spirit empowers the Word here and makes this scream to us how important this is and how supreme Christ is. Of course, we just covered a section last week that dealt with the character of Christ, didn't we? Uh, It dealt with the very image of God. He is the image, the very icon. He is the very radiance of God. And everything about the character and nature of God is in Him. Uh, It talked about the preeminent one. And of course, that was the title last week, The Preeminent One. We've been singing that song, The Preeminent One. Uh, he's supreme. He's all in all. He's first in everything, right? That's what that's about there. Also talked about that He is supreme in being the creator of the universe. That's right. Jesus created. And uh, also in Colossians 1 there, it talks about the supremacy of Christ in holding the universe together. He is the supreme sustainer. Uh, that's the reason that we are existing here today. We sit here in these chairs. We're able to get up. He's the one that keeps that going. Now, after that, you go, what do you follow that up with? Well, the next verses you follow it up with because this is all about the high, lofty, preeminent, exalted picture of the supreme being. And we didn't finish 
last week. We didn't finish what Paul was bringing forth. We have to continue on today. And uh, that is a privilege. I couldn't be happier talking directly about the person and work of Christ. That's what it's about. I mean, that's the thing that we should be focusing on most of the day. The person of Christ. That's His nature, His character, His very being. And the work of Christ, what He did. Those two things really is what should be our focus. Uh, As we discuss today about Christ, we're, we're going to see Him supreme as the head of the church. And then we'll go on further talking about the very fullness of deity. Boy, these verses are packed, are they not? And the reconciliation, there's a great term, that He has done to put us where we have been, where we are at. He came to us to reconcile us. What a work. So this continues the thought of the preeminent one. I just love to think of those kind of terms. Supremacy, excellencies, the preeminence of Christ. What stunning, stunning, powerful revelation we have. I want you to understand, this should stretch our little pea-brain minds as we think on these verses, even though we might have read them many, many times. We never take them for granted because it's drawing a picture of how huge and dominant Christ is, and that should dominate our thinking. There is nothing better to be thinking on on how great Christ is. Can you think of anything better? I mean, you can think of things that we do, activities and actions. Some of the coolest things that's come out on video and audio, uh, YouTube, and I, you know, you just name it. You know, it's just everywhere. The greatest thing, Olympics, man, isn't that great? I mean, you can talk about that. Talk about the swimming, all the gold medals they had. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that fun to watch? The United States is supreme in swimming. <laughs> I, and I enjoy that. I enjoy, you know. You know why we're so swimming? Why? Oh, okay. I, okay, you, you had to follow that up. This had to be big. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of swing. But you know what? There's something even grander, isn't there? That stretch it should just magnify our thoughts as as we look at this. I think he is so glorious. He deserves all our praise, doesn't he? And that's that's why we're here today. That's why we do anything. But our thoughts should be just thinking on him. Now what's going to happen in this next hour is that as we dwell upon these thoughts, they're going to be thoughts in our mind that come through Oh, what am I supposed to do today after let's see at one o'clock I'm supposed four o'clock I'm supposed to be doing you know what I mean? There are going to be thoughts that enter your mind. And, and just, just try to focus on Christ for, for this hour and see how long your mind can stay with that as, as we peer into His Word. Because this is the grandest thing. This is the best thing that we can look at that we understand as we peer into God's Word, isn't it? There's nothing better. It, it, it is far exalting over anything else, no matter how grand things are out there. So um, let's let's stand for a few moments, honor God's word as we read it, starting at Colossians 1:18. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place, the gold medal, in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure. 
for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank You for this Word. And have Your Holy Spirit to empower Your Word here to strengthen us as we trust in You even more. In Jesus' name, Amen. First one, He's supreme over the church. He's the head of the church. He's the head. As Christ is sovereign, we did that confession earlier this morning and sang the song, He's sovereign over creation. He's also creation, uh, or also sovereign over the church. And we just finished in verse 16, for by Him all things are created. Everything. Us. All, all of creation. And then, then He says, but I'll tell you something else. He's also head over the church. He is sovereign. We as Christians are totally dependent upon the head. Uh, we're in the body. He is the head. The body depends upon the head. Right? The body has to have the head and all the mental faculties. Um, and it sends messages for the body to do. The body doesn't obey, then the body becomes spastic, starts doing things that the mind hasn't told it, and all of a sudden you have uh, something just uh, just crazy. But what he does as the head is that he energizes us. He coordinates everything together. There is diversity within the body of Christ, is there not? Within the body of Christ, there are different gifts. There's different ministries. Everybody has a different one. And they all come together and they make that body work. Incredible thing. The head directs what's going to go on with the rest of the body. That's the way Christ does to the church. And so He's directing all of our movements. There's no human being here on earth that can be called the head of the church. They can have all sorts of different titles. They can start the denomination. They can be the founder of a church. But they're not the head of the church. They can be called whatever. But it doesn't matter. They're not. There's only one head. That head is Jesus Christ. So, those individuals do not supply life to the church. He does. He supplies the life. He's the head. We are the body. It says He's also the head of the body, the church. Boy, many images in Scripture about us. And we know that we're considered to be sheep. And sheep that's... uh, that's in an army. We're also an army, right? We're soldiers. Fighting sheep we are. Have you ever heard of such a thing? That always gets me. Fighting sheep. Sheep, uh, the best they can do is roll over on their stomach and go, oh, and then they can't do anything else and they're stuck until somebody comes along. But we're considered to be a flock. But we're considered to be a family. Brothers and sisters. I love that one. Isn't that a great image? We are family. I'm not going to sing the song. Sorry. We are a vineyard. 
We're a vineyard. We're also branches. He's the vine, we're the branches. We are a building, are we not? We are a building uh, being put together. We are a bride. We are the bride of Christ. Isn't that incredible? Are you waiting for that wedding supper of the Lamb? The bride meets the groom Christ. Well, anyway, those are excellent metaphors. And they're excellent because that's what God used to tell us what we're like. Try to get an idea what that is. But the best metaphor, probably, or the one used much by Paul is the body. We are the body. We've heard that so much, we go, okay, I'm going to phase out on this for a moment and I'll come back whenever he gets out of that verse because I've heard this so many times. We've been in Corinthians, we've been in Romans, <laughs> and now here we are, Ephesians, now here we are in Colossians, and now we're talking about the body again. Here we go. Uh, but you know what? It's a good reminder. If you want to look in Ephesians 4 4, just for a moment. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over in all and through all and in all. (laughs) There's one body. There's one head. We are that body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. Good to be reminded that we are a body. We're to function like the body so that the body will, all the parts will work. Verse 12, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, it's unity and diversity, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. There's Corinthians, uh, we've seen Colossians, we've seen Ephesians dealing with the body. Romans chapter 12, verse 5, another one dealing with uh, the body. How important it is to realize that you all have a part to play in this body. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are connected to each other. We are connected, we're, we're individual, but yet we're part of that. So, there are the Scriptures that support that passage. No problem with that. Uh, We belong to a universal whole body of Christ all across the whole world, and that is the body that is invisible. The church invisible. But let's not forget, usually when you see church in the New Testament, it's going to be dealing with the people that are in a local body. Not anything different than this. A local body. That's how the church functions. That's how it's going to work. We minister to God's people through a local body, through the local church. Yes, we are all part of the whole body of Christ, but yet we are commanded to meet together. That's very important as the church functions. Our responsibilities are found in the local church. So, he says that in Colossians, that He is the head of this. Always good to know. That's where we take our orders. He is also head of the body of the church and He is, by the way, the word for church, ecclesia, ek, out of, ecclesia, called, called out of. We're called out of this mess in the world, out of the sinful 
mankind in this world and we're called ultimately to be holy. Uh, He calls us out. That's the church. Now, the next one. And He is the beginning. So we have to focus on that word, don't we? He is the beginning. Now, it's interesting. That word for beginning is, if you think that we're uh, we're reading the writing that Paul wrote to Colossae. Colossae is a Greek city, but it's part of the Roman world. And so they're Roman citizens, but they had a lot of Greek culture behind them. And some of that Greek culture was getting into the church. There's quite a challenge. There are false teachings coming in. Now, what the Greeks sought after was the beginning. This the same Greek word here that Paul uses, which is the word arche. Okay, and I'll get to that in a moment. But they sought for the ultimate beginning. Where did I come from? Where did this world come from? See, those are good questions, aren't they? Matter of fact, there's some of the mo- that, those are the most important questions that one could ever ask. Where did I come from? Where am I going, right? But they looked for the beginning, the arche. Okay, you think of arche, our English word arch comes from the Greek word arche. Well, that was pretty tough, wasn't it? And we've, we've seen this word before, but uh, you think of, uh, ooh, I think of the superhero movies. Arch, what? Enemy. Yeah. Or archbishop. Or archangels. Right? Archangels. You think of angels, but then there are archangels. What are they? Well, they're the leaders of those angels. Like Mark, Michael, the archangel. So we're talking about a leader, a source, a primacy, an uh, originator. The beginning. He's the head of the church, he is the beginning. He is the ruler. He is the chief. He's first. And so this gets into the whole idea of the preeminence again. How can you put Christ anywhere else, right? He is first. So he uses different analogies all the way through here. He keeps Paul keeps elevating him further and further with the Holy Spirit giving him those terms and with his education and you put the two together and you lift Christ up. And you do that by the Word of God. That's how you praise God based upon this Word. That's why it's so important. So he tells us that Jesus is has priority in time as far as the church is concerned. He's the originator of it. He gives life to the church. It has its origins in Jesus. He's already spoken that He is the firstborn of all creation, which is the same idea. He is the preeminent one of all creation. He was before creation. He is first. And as He brings this on down, He shows that He created, did that. And not only that, that but the church is even more important, isn't it, than the creation of the world. He lifts the church up above everything. That's incredible. The beginning. He's the beginning. He's the source of that. Then he says the firstborn from the dead. It's not that he was born again as we are born again. He did die in the flesh, although he was always God and always will be God. But as far as the flesh, he had to die. And even though he remained deity, he was humanity also. And that's the uh, incredible teaching of the incarnation of Christ. 
We've seen this word before, this firstborn, and it goes back to verse 15, and this is where people get so stumbled about, and even Christians sometimes go, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do with that one? The firstborn of all creation. That means he he was the first one born. That means God created him then. Well, we run into trouble with that. If that's a fact, then he's not God. And this whole passage is dealing with that. He is God. He create. How can you be a creator if you have been created? <laughs> it can't be. And it goes to show you that word is prototokos. And it doesn't mean what our English word means. It, it does mean preeminent or highest in rank. Of all those who are going to be raised from the dead now, he's saying, all those who will be raised from the dead, which we will be, one of these days when Christ comes back, Christ, Christ is the highest in rank. He's the firstborn from the dead. Even though He did come out of the grave, He wasn't born. He wasn't born again. And there are those teachings in the church today. And they're not even considered cults, although I consider them to be cults, but they consider Him to be the first one born again. Don't buy that for a moment. We are born again, but He is not. He rose from the dead. He resurrected. Take note of that, because that's a popular teaching. You'll see that on, on uh, even uh, TV, TV, cable channels and such. Uh, some of the false books that are out there. But uh, this is dealing with His resurrection. There could be no resurrections for others if there wasn't the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His body resurrected, although He was fully God all at the same time. So He is the firstborn from the dead. Uh, verse 1 Corinthians 15.20 is really good to go to there just before we go to the next section here. 15.20 But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. That explains it there. That's the resurrection chapter. Famous. And He says He's the first fruits. Using an Old Testament Analogy, first fruits was a festival, the first fruits festival during the Passover. He is the first fruits. Guarantees there are going to be more resurrected. The church, us. He came to earth to die so that he would rise from the dead for our justification. Okay, we move on. He's the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have what? First place. Do you see something that keeps repeating through here? First. And in some of your versions, some of you might have the word preeminent. And that's the word we've been using. Well, guess what? This time, that word, even though it says preeminent, is different than the word that we were using for prototokos, the firstborn of all creation, which we said means preeminent. Now he uses the English word preeminent, and it means preeminent, but it's not prototokos. But it's very close. It means preeminence. They're very closely related. But he uses just a specific word here, preeminent or first place. And it's only used once in the New Testament and it's used right here. Nowhere else will you see this word first place or preeminent. uh, In the Greek anyway. So this magnifies what he's already talked about. He said prototokos. Uh, the firstborn. Now he's saying, okay, well, let me put it on a little bit different angle here. Let me magnify this and lift it up a little bit higher. He's the preeminent one, which we've already said. Christ is all and in all. I mean, He's it. 
in every respect he is all what language what words can he use to say everything about Christ he's trying to and finally we run out of words don't we and we talked about the sovereign God this morning as we did that confession did you see all the words there and that could go on endlessly you know, but it's that's just thinking on him. First place in everything. In everything, he's to have supremacy. This is the theme. The entire section is what this is, the preeminence. And in Philippians chapter two, which is the book just before this, in verse nine, it gets to that section that is so exalted. For this reason God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Boy, that's an incredible passage. Have you noticed how the Word of God just keeps being lifted up more and more? Oh. What do you say? Boy, Paul was dynamic in his writing, wasn't he? Jesus is the head. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the preeminent. How supreme is that? Well, there's even more that should make us be in awe. We could stop right here and just say, thank you, Lord, and that's our worship, and and that would be just fine. But you know I'm not going to do that. So we move on to verse 19. That verse right there was just loaded, wasn't it? Boy, God's Word, it just just keeps getting more and more incredible every time you read it. Verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure. It is His pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Father's pleasure. The reason Christ is preeminent, the reason Christ is supreme, is that God was pleased that the whole pleroma of fullness dwell in Him. Now, now it's not that He wasn't full before and then God the Father says, now I'm going to fill Him up with my character and nature. And now He's going to be full. No, that's not the idea here. This is said, you know, It says that, uh, that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. There is an ultimate where He will turn over everything, where He is the Lord, as in Philippians 2, where we see that, but He already is. And He already is supreme in that sense though too. But He's always been God. Always will be. Uh, All that fullness has always been there. It pleases the Father that the Son is the second person of the Trinity. He is pleased with His Son. He's pleased that He is equal with Him. And it's not that He became at one time. No, He's eternal. Christ has always been here. This is why this whole section is talking about the deity of Christ. And He goes and explains it as much as He possibly can. It pleased the Father that through Christ there would be an incarnation and that there would be a redemption. It pleases the Father that that be that way. He's pleased with this. You know, that's what God is all the time. He's pleased. He's pleased. He's satisfied. Pleasure. God takes pleasure. People say it's bad to be a hedonist. Well, according to the world's definition, yeah, it is. But really, as Piper has always presented, we need to be Christian hedonists in seeing that there is great pleasure 
in seeking out God and living the life that God has for us and those things that He gives us. We can take pleasure in those things and give Him glory for that. Anyway, the fact that it pleased the Father to have the fullness in Christ is proof that Jesus Christ is God. Proves this. The full fullness, and I don't even know if you could say that in English, but the full fullness of God is found in the person of Christ. He can't be more fuller of God. It's not that He has some more God to, to come in Him. You know, he's, he, he's becoming more God. You know, the, what is it, the Mormons teach that as God is, we will become. And He's becoming even greater. You know, I mean, He's growing in His Godhood. No, God is maxed out. He doesn't, He's not lacking anything. He's always had everything totally full. Christ was eternally the fullness and the Father didn't choose Him to become that because Christ was always that. That's inherent in Him. That's essential to His very person. That's what the Father is pleased with because He's equal with Him. Now that word fullness, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Okay, we're right at the end of verse 19, right? Father takes pleasure that Christ would have all the fullness. And the word fullness is the word pleroma. Pleroma is something that means a completeness. Uh, and, and really, ultimately, the way that we see it scripturally, and even the Greeks, was the sum total of the divine attributes. The sum total of the very character, the very power of God. All total together. And that's the play Roman. Okay? Now that's the thought that the Greeks had. And so why are you bringing out these Greek words? Well, the Bible was first and originally written in Greek. So the best way we can go back and get the most accuracy is to learn Greek. Uh, you don't really have to. Matter of fact, that's one reason why you have me here. I know a little Greek. He um, actually is a tailor. And um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, you know, Sproul said that he took his pants. There he says, there's a rip of there. That's, that's a little bit of a Greek word there, right? Uh, and then he all said, uh, I'm into these. I'm into these. Good Greek word, right? Okay, we're going to move on. All right. Play Roma. Okay, the Gnostics, right? Okay, remember the Gnostics? They're going to come together a little bit later in church history from the time this was written, but they were already forming. And every week I talk about the Gnostics. Well, remember, Paul is refuting the Gnostics or this false teaching that's coming in. So he uses the words they use. He gets on their playground and then uses it for the church. And now we get to use that. So he uses this. That's why these Greek words are important. And you remember that they have these emanations that come from God and they're a little bit less and become a little bit less than God. It's like angels. They're like uh, spirit beings. And they finally come down and finally get to Christ. Now you can see that they say that Christ is not God, right? 
And that's really what they're trying to prove. Because he's emanations and he is not the totality of God. He's pretty close, but he's quite a series away from the ultimate Godhood. So he's really not that, right? So the emanations were kind of divided up. Now what's this word pleroma? Fullness. Well, they have divided up Divinity is spread out in small doses among the spirits. And you become lesser and lesser gods. It's divided up. None of them have the totality of God. Right? That's what they believe. That's the Greek thinking. Now, bring that thought into people who have had the Greek philosophy and now they have Christianity and they start thinking and rather than doing what Paul says... They take a little bit of what he has and the rest of the Old Testament and then they put together the philosophies of the day and they come up with their own false Christianity. And yet they say they believe in Christ. That's what's so concerning about it. That's why cults do so well. They say they believe in Christ and then you find out they don't believe in the deity of Christ. That's, that's where you always hit uh, a cult. If you really want to go for the throat of the teaching of the cultist, what do they say about Christ? You'll find out very quickly that they don't see the deity there. Now, Paul uses this term eight times in this letter. Play wrong. So there's something significant about it. He knew they used it all the time, so Paul says, okay, I'm going to get on your own ground. And it's like an intentional slap at them. Play Roma. Oh, play Roma. Fullness, huh? Okay, I'll show you fullness. All the fullness of God is found in Christ. Everything is there. He's not an emanation. He's not, it's not found in any of those spirits, those lesser gods. Jesus is the full fullness of God. You see what he's trying to do? I mean, he's already stated that he is God. Now he comes up and he has the very fullness of God. Now, the next chapter, he tries to amplify it even more. Verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him, talking about Christ, all the fullness, and there's that word pleroma, of deity dwells, it sounds like our chapter 1 there, doesn't it? In bodily form. He's saying, hey listen, the very fullness of deity, the very Godhood Himself, the Godhead Himself, is found in Christ who was here in the body. Totally God. He is totally God. Now, do you see why Paul is impressing this thought and impounding it in there? If you don't hit that and hit it hard, and the church has, it's had councils, it's had uh, different meetings where they had to get together and discuss this deity. Because if they wouldn't have, humanly, it could have been lost. And you'd have Christ as something else than what we're talking about today. We're lifting Him up. And they bring Him down. And so... We see fullness means a lot. In John 1, verse 16, of course, John 1 is all about the deity of Christ also. And in verse 16, after he talks about the Word became flesh, in 16 he says, For of His fullness, there's that word pleroma, we have all received and grace upon grace. We have the fullness of Christ. We have Christ living in us. We're not God. We're not deity. But He resides in us. Jesus is the full fullness of God. Now back to Colossians. And it says, the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Have to concentrate on that word. We're just picking this apart. Aren't we? Well, we have to because these words are so important. His fullness 
dwells in him or lives in him or to, it makes a permanent home. The permanent home of God is in Christ. He dwells there. He resides there to be at home permanently. The fullness lives in Him. It's not temporary. Eternal. It's there to stay. Always been there. His very nature, His very being, His very character is all part of Him and lives in Him. That means that there is no one else to look to for your guidance and direction, or for the full revelation of God's character. Hey, I know about Christianity, but this over here is pretty good over here too, and a little bit of Hinduism. Hey, I like that. They've got some really good good thoughts. And uh, you know, you take all those Eastern religions and some of the thoughts of today, and you put them together with Christianity, and you have the best of everything, right? Um, not according to this, because you're looking for something else. No, it's only in Christ, and you can't find anything that's dealing with the fullness of God outside of Him. As we see Him in the Gospels, as we see Him in the Epistles, as we see Him in the book of Revelation, as we see Him in the Old Testament that's veiled, as we look at that, we see His character in all the Scriptures, and as we hear Him preached and taught, we know what He's like. You find it right here. This is where it's at. We know what He's like. God dwells in Him. He is God. John Owen had a high, lofty thought. Of him. Now, you're going to have to follow me on this. You remember John Owen, the great Puritan? One of my favorite theologians. One of the greatest theologians of all time. He goes back to the Puritan age. Late 1600s, he was from England. Uh, he was very hard to read, at least some said. Very difficult sometimes. And sometimes uh, it's too bad he couldn't have broken it down a little bit. But uh, this paragraph I have here I think is very, very uh, understandable. I'm going to read it slow. This is what he thought uh, on this passage here. The revelation of Christ, the revealing of Christ, is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation. You can look at creation and see how fantastic and awesome it is, and it is, because God created it, and you go, wow, and we should do that. Somewhere on the Facebook, I've got to go home today and see some pretty awesome things there that I just found out that Nondor put up. That is, right? Was it on Nondor's? Or on, on, on his link? If you want to see what I'm talking about, I don't know what I'm talking about because I haven't seen it. But I have an idea, and they were revealing it. I was talking about, I think, Louis Giglio and probably dealing with creation again, right? And that is an incredible thing because it shows us who God is. But if you want to go even beyond that, he says, and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man is wrapped up in darkness. Without the knowledge of Christ. Wrapped up in darkness. That's easy to understand. And we're getting some John Owen here today that we can understand. All right. Now goes on further. This deserves the severest of our thoughts. Severe, like that. The best of our meditations and our utmost diligence in them. I'm talking about the thoughts of Christ. For our future blessings 
shall consist in living where He is, we're going to be with Him, right? If our future blessings and the rest of eternity, however long that is, which is eternity, (laughs) and beholding of His glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the Gospel? That by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. Now, we will be transformed. We will have new bodies. But did you know, right now, just this moment, if you're concentrating on Christ and His Word, and you're letting the Holy Spirit speak to you as this Word just lifts off the page into your life, you know what? You are being transformed right now. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, one of my all-time favorite verses. Beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, our being, that means right now, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We're being transformed. Does that boggle your mind? God is actually working in me as I read His Word here this morning? Yeah, that's happening right now. You should be more transformed right now. There should be some growth right now as of today compared to when you first got up this morning. If any of His Word has made an impact on you here. Wow. John Owen, I think, said it very well when he talked about this kind of knowledge of God, this excellent, glorious knowledge and this divine wisdom and this glory. It deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations. Our utmost diligence in Him. Okay, now we go on to the third part. Hey folks, we're on part three already. Oh, we have a lot of verses though. Hmm. Verse 20. Now it gets into reconciling all things. So far, in this section... He's preeminent in the head, right, of the church. And what we just look at, he's preeminent or supreme in his deity. And now, what he did for us in his reconciling us to God. Now, the term reconcile is one of the most important words in all the Bible. <laughs> you say, why do you say that? Well, Salvation is pretty important to us, isn't it? Because <laughs> without that, why we wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't want to be here. But when you think of salvation, you think of justification. You also think of redemption. Right? You think of forgiveness. You think of adoption. You think of reconciliation. Well, justification says that I am guilty as I stand before a holy God. Yet He declares me righteous before Him. Get that. Am I righteous in myself? (laughs) No. But as far as Christ is concerned, yes, I am. He not only justifies us, but He redeems us. That means we were slaves and we were in bondage as slaves to sin, death, hell, Satan. We were in bondage. But He took us out of the marketplace He set us free. We now have freedom in Christ. From this to this. And that's the idea of redemption. And then when we think of forgiveness, we think 
that at one time we were not right before God and we were guilty and that kind of thing meant that we were debtors. We were debtors to Him and now the debt is paid in full. We didn't pay that. He paid it for That's a pretty important word, isn't it? How about adoption? You like that? He not only set us free and also forgave us, but He put us into His family and gave us the rights, made us heirs along with Jesus Christ. So that we own all things with Christ. Christ is all in all and... He is our brother and we are set free. We're in the family, adopted. We're also reconciled. And that's the key word that he hits on now. Reconciled takes you to the thought of being an enemy. <laughs> it takes you to the thought of, I was against him. And now, he has made our relationship together. We've been made friends. I'm a son of God. I'm a friend of God. I like the idea of being a son of God in the sense of being uh, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Romans 8 talks about and such. Um, But a friend of God is not bad either, is it? And Abraham was considered to be a friend of God. And all who believe like Abraham are considered to be friends of God. We're no longer enemies. We were once enemies, but we've now have been made friends. We have a right relationship when two people have a great argument, and they have plenty of arguments, and finally it just busts open, and they're at odds with each other, and they don't want to see each other again. There is a need for them to be reconciled Who's going to do the reconciling? And in this situation here, we didn't want to be reconciled. We liked it just fine being away from God. And so He takes over that position. Now, we get into verse 20. For through Him, through Christ, reconciles all things to Himself. The word is katalaso. It just means to change, to exchange. It means to change in a relationship. To change the relationship. In these verses, I said katalaso, and you don't have to put that down, but there is a preposition for that Greek word which amplifies it even more and it means to be thoroughly, completely Totally reconciled. Amp it up. Yeah, you're reconciled. But he says, totally reconciled. So he takes that up an extreme step there. Extremely reconciled. It can't get any better. Now the false teaching, why does Paul say this? As he's counteracting that, he's lifting up Christ, but he's also putting down a false teaching. He said, don't buy that stuff. False teaching denied being reconciled to Christ alone. You're not reconciled to Christ alone. Here it says that Paul refutes it. He emphasizes the full reconciliation. That's why he uses that 
that word. You are fully reconciled because He is full deity and He fully reconciles. Look in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, and I think there you get our position and of course dealing with reconciliation also. Uh, Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, there, there it is, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. His interceding for us. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17 through 21. This is one of the best passages in all the Bible about reconciliation. This really goes along with our Colossians passage so well. Therefore, and, and I'm kind of skipping some other verses before this. He's already talked about reconciled, but let's pick it up at 20. No, go to 17. Let's get it. Let's get it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Everybody knows that, right? Okay, we're new creatures. The old things have passed away, right? We're dead and gone. Behold, new things have come. We are new. Now, Paul says this, all things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now he's saying we have this same ministry. We are to go and proclaim reconciliation. People can be reconciled with God. Okay? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We now can do that. Therefore, here we go, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're representing Him. As though God were making an appeal through us. He's using our bodies, our mouths, to make an appeal to people that they can be reconciled because they are enemies. Now, he's going to amplify that, what they were. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Okay, kind of wraps up the Gospel and reconciliation and such. The restoration of a right relationship between God and man. Right? And it was all done by God. We didn't do anything to be reconciled. Not one thing. He is the one that made it happen. Now, there is a reconciliation of creation in our Colossians passage. God has to reconcile creation because it was affected. He says reconcile all things, right? We know it reconciles us, but man's sin brought him to futility. We know about the fall in Genesis 3. The earth is cursed. That's why we're having such hot weather this summer, if you really want to get down to it. But God is using that all for, for good. But at the same time, there are extreme temperatures that you know we're not used to. and We would like it to be better and we like to have more rain and stuff. God knows what He's doing. But at the same time, in, in glory... Uh, you don't have to worry about rain. <laughs> you don't have to be worried about anything. He's going to take care of it. But the, the, the earth is cursed and it has, a, it has a hostility. The animal world has a hostility. All creation does. Let's look at Romans 8, verse 20. And here is a positive and good news of what God is going to do with the subjection of futility of the creation. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It didn't want to do that. It didn't do it on its own. Say, hey, let's be, let's be futile. <laughs> but because of Him who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Children of God are going to be set free. We're going to have resurrected bodies. And he says, the earth also is going to have that too. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, creation is doing that. We can look at other passages. I don't have uh, really enough time, but there are many passages. i got Isaiah 60 down there, and I think Revelation 21, and 2 Peter 3. Um, All of this is going to burn up. Universe as we know it, um, it's going to be a recreation of the heavens and the earth. It's going to be glorified, just like we're going to have new bodies. All things will be made new. The material world is going to be reconciled. That means now it's going to have a right relationship because of what man did. The curse. Here's where what creation is doing: plants and animals and the weather and everything. And God is going to reverse that. How about mankind? That's us. Uh, we move on further in Colossians, verse 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Hey, this is explaining who we were, folks. <laughs> we were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We did evil deeds. So what are we're alienated? We're hostile and we're evil. That's what we were. Uh, in Ephesians, which parallels Colossians so much, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So what does that do? It condemns us. tells us that we were sinners and we were you know, people of the nature by children of wrath. What's the first two words of verse 4? But God. Being rich in mercy. Well, what's our Colossians says? Though you were formerly alienated, hostile mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet, but God. Right? He has now reconciled you. He tells how bad we were. And then in the next verse, He says, but God. Or yet... He. Don't you like that? Ooh, this is great news, folks. Alienated. You were formerly alienated. That means cut off. That means you were separated. You were estranged. God cut you off. God cut off the Gentiles. Then later He cut off the Jews. Everybody's cut off. Romans 3 says that. None of you are good. No, not one of you. There is nothing that we can do to get to God. We can't do anything. We are dead, right? He says hostile in mind. You know what that means? Hateful. Hateful. Look in Romans 8, verse 7. What we once were. Oh. We were rolling right along, Dennis, talking about the exaltation of Christ, and now we get into what we were. Kind of good to be reminded. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. He said, I never hated God. Yes, you did. You hated God. He said, I never hated God. Well, then you're lying. Or God is lying. And since God can't lie, what's that make you? It makes you a liar. And uh, you are hostile. You were hateful towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It can't. It cannot 
subject itself to the law and be good and do what it says. And then verse 8, And those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. Unbelievers can't just say, okay, you know, one of these days whenever I think about it, I'm going to go to God, but in the meantime, I'm going to have some fun. (laughs) No, you can't do that. You can't come to God when you want, right? It's up to God. Romans 8, 7, and 8, and then we do the Romans 5, 6 through 10, just to level us down a little bit, and then we'll come back up. You ready? We read some of this earlier, but I'm going to... uh, and, And if you have a pen real quick... Be ready to do some circling, okay? Because I'm going to show you just in a few verses how evil and wicked we all were. Everybody's ever been born. Look at this, verse 6. For while we were still, what? Helpless. If you want to, if it's not too bad for you to do that, circle that. At the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly, okay? We're helpless, means we can't do anything, and we're ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the godly people, did He? Oh, that guy's going to believe in me, so I'm going to die for him. (laughs) No, He did that while we were ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners. So what are we? We're helpless. We're ungodly. We are sinners. Christ died for us while we were helpless and ungodly and sinners. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Because of His blood. The wrath would have been on us, but the blood was shed. Now we get one more. For if while we were enemies, there's that word, right? Enemies. We were reconciled to God. There's our word that we're working on today. Through death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we all shall be saved by His life. Oh, wow. So we're helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies. And we find out in Colossians that we were alienated and hostile or hateful and evil. We hated God. We were enemies. We were wicked sinners. He reconciled us. And we'd never have done that ourselves, would we have? Okay, what's the method of reconciliation? What have we seen? We've seen the plan of reconciliation, right? Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you. The method is this. Okay, We have to have a question. How can a holy God reconcile evil, wicked hateful people that are ungodly, that are sinners and, and all of that stuff, how can a holy God do that? How can He reconcile people that if they're that really that bad, how can He do that? He's, he's a just God and He has to judge that, right? Yes, He does. And it had to be the judgment on His own son. Son has to die. So He has peace, peace through His blood. Peace is the opposite of what? War. So we were enemies, we were at war with God. And it says in Colossians, He has reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. Um, We've been now made peace with Him. We have peace with Him. That's what it says in verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. The blood speaks of the atonement. You think of the Old Testament. The ultimate blood is Jesus Christ's blood. That means a violent death that happened to happen. A violent, sacrificial death. The cross is the ultimate evidence that there is 
no length of love of God that will refuse to go in in effecting this reconciliation on us. Nothing will hold him back. He died as a man, God, for men. The method of reconciliation. Now, there's a purpose found in verse 22. Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present. In order that, that means here's the reason, here's the purpose. First of all, for His glory, right? For His pleasure, for His will, but that we'd be holy, blameless, above reproach. Three things there. Holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Not enough time to go into it with depth. Holy, we're set apart. You'll find that in Ephesians 1.4. He also says that we're blameless. That means without blemish. Without uh, blemishing the... It's a blameless character. Okay? And then he says beyond reproach. Not only without blemish, he emphasizes the word uh, beyond reproach by taking the word blameless and saying... Not only are you blameless, but nobody can bring a charge against you. Nobody can bring a charge against you to the judge. Not even Satan. That is why He did all this. This is why He reconciled us. He had select people that He wanted. And He says, I'm going to make them holy, blameless, without reproach, Martin Luther says as soon as we believe that very instant we start to get better. It's like a medicine, he says, when somebody's ready to die and it's put on their lips but this medicine works in people and they're able to live and then be productive again. He said as soon as we believe that very instant we start to get better. The process of becoming pure and holy is underway. It's already started and its future completion is certain. It's already started. You're getting better. Your body isn't. Body might be getting worse. Unless you're young, you're building it up, man, you got the ripples and everything, right? But eventually, those swimmers, you know, those guys in great shape, right? One of these days, they're going to look like it. <laughs> one of these days. One of these days. You know, if the next thought comes after this, and we're ready to, to finish this up, if we're truly being made holy, if you're Christian, you are. You're being set apart. That's part of sanctification. You are that. That's why this next verse looks troubling. If, indeed, you continue in the faith. You say, aha, there it is. There's our loss of salvation. See, I knew it. I told you, I, I knew that you could lose your salvation. You can blow it one of these days. Well, how can I blow it? By sinning. Alright, I do sin. I'm not proud of it and I confess it. And God, I, I want to repent of this sin. But you know what? I still sin because I'm in the flesh. What sin is it? And they'll say, well, it's un- unbelief. It's when you, you turn your back on God. Well, if you're really in the, the, the flock, remember that metaphor? If you're in the flock, as he says in John 10, I know my sheep and they know me. And I have them in my hand. The Father has them in His hand. And they will always eternally be mine. You cannot lose your salvation by an act. Otherwise, 
there's something that you have to do to get into the kingdom of God and now no longer is it grace. You have to keep yourself saved. What? Every one of us would go astray. We'd do just like all the sheep do. We would go astray. We'd leave the path. And you say, well, it just says it right here, if indeed you continue in the faith. And yes, let that be a warning to us. We need to check ourselves out. Are we truly a Christian? If we are, that's fine. What he's doing, he's connecting us here though, of showing and demonstrating that if our lives are genuine and we have been made holy, God has already started the process of sanctification and you will be established, you will be firm, you will be steadfast. Does that mean I am not going to sin anymore? No, wish it did. But no, that's not the plan. We will still sin. Hopefully less. But more sin will come attention to us as we see God's Word. We're convicted by it, but He's shaping us into the image of Christ. And we will show that we have evidence of our reconciliation. That's why in Matthew 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I did miracles. I cast out demons. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did this ministry. Get away from me. I what? I never knew you. I never knew you. I mean, we were never in his family. We were never adopted. We made professions of faith, but it really wasn't real. John 6.66, he tells them, uh, many of the disciples have left because he had some difficult sayings. Sayings like, you're not going to come to me. You will be drawn to Christ by the Father, right? You'll be drawn to Him. And only those who come to Him will receive eternal life. And only those that come to Him are by Him. And it says in 1 John 2.19, those ones who are not real, the ones who left us, they're just showing that they weren't for real. They never were of us. Check that passage out. He shows that there are the ones that are true. There are the ones who think they are, who look like they are. The ones who continue in the faith, who are they? In John 8.31, it shows us who those people are. You will show that you are Christian by this. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, you can believe Him and still not be a believer. You can believe that He really existed. What is a true belief? Trusting in Him, right? But if you if you continue, there we go, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. If you are continuing, if you are steadfast, if you are in this Word, what it will do is show you that, show others and yourself that you are a Christian. You abide in His Word. Thy Word is truth. We live in His truth. He lives in us. We abide in that. We continue in the faith. We are new creations. All things have been, all things that are old are, are gone. We are now new creatures. We're growing in that personal holiness. I'm ready to wind this down, I promise. Personal holiness should be what our whole life's business is about, though. We're saved by grace, and because of that, we live by grace. We demonstrate the work of God in us. As He works in us, we work it out. We are to feed on Christ. Our hearts are to focus on Him, on His love. Our wills are to take 
the practice and pattern that Christ has set, follow Him. We're to hold fast to the Gospel. That won't cause doubt in our salvation if we're holding fast to this Word of God. We must fill our lives every day from Him. Drinking from that fountain. Recognize that. Let us contemplate. Let us concentrate all of our thoughts on the greatness of Christ. All that He has done for us, His person and His work. Let's behold His glory. Let's realize that He is preeminent. And in our lives, the very greatness that He is, in our lives we are going to praise Him because He deserves the preeminence in our thoughts. The highest thoughts. I'll ask you one question. Is He preeminent in your lives? Is He preeminent there? What God has in mind for us is the greatest vision ever conceived for any mortal man. Let's pray. Father, God, thank You for showing us the very preeminence, the very deity of Christ, the very fullness of God is in Him and He has reconciled us to Him so that we'd be holy, blameless, without reproach because that gives the most glory to You. Thank You, Lord, for this Word. May it make an impact on all of our lives individually as this little local church and the rest of the body of Christ and to the lost world out there that needs to know that there is a reconciler. There's a reconciling message. The good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.